Hello and welcome to Adverse Reactions Season 2. My name is David Faulkner and this is my co-host. And Chappelle. As much fun as the first season of Adverse Reactions was, I think Season 2 is better. Hidden. Secretive. Exactly. The toxicology that happens when you're not looking. Or toxicology that you forgot about. It's still important and we're here to talk about it. Welcome to Season 2 of Adverse Reactions. Hidden toxicology. The wild side of toxicology. As a veterinary toxicologist, what can I do? I start to think of those hidden tox questions. What happens to the birds that survive? Will they be able to reproduce again? And if they do, are those viable, healthy chicks? Or will they have epigenetic changes in their germline that will really kick up in three generations like we do see with some of these models? And then the collapse happens. Or lions and vultures and tox, oh my, with Caroline Moore. We can sell a beautiful story about a beautiful jaguar, but it's the whole ecosystem we need to focus on. And that's where toxicology comes in because it does touch every plant. Every microorganism will be impacted by what chemicals we find in the composition there. So we wanted to welcome Caroline Moore to our podcast today. Welcome. My name is Anne Chappelle. I'm here with my co-host. David Faulkner. Hello, everybody. Caroline, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do so that my mom could understand if she met you at a party. I am a scientist at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, and I work in disease investigations. Kind of break it down. We have the San Diego Zoo, which is downtown. We have the Safari Park, which is in Escondido. And we actually have veterinary hospitals at both locations and then science research going on in both locations. And when I say science and research, what I mean is conservation wildlife science. And these departments can be anywhere from disease investigations, like I mentioned, conservation genetics, reproduction, recovery ecology. We basically have all these different fields and we come together to try to remove roadblocks to wildlife conservation. So the things I focus on as a veterinary toxicologist in disease investigations is trying to understand what wildlife is being exposed to in the wild, how it's impacting their health, and what does that mean as far as the species thriving in the environment to its full potential. And if there is something going on, how do I suggest to stop it or change it or somehow help protect that animal in the wild? I think that this is something that a lot of people may not know is that there's a surprising amount of research that comes out of these large institutions that have a lot of wild animals. It's a very unique situation because we do have the park and the zoo where there's fantastic welfare and animal health and science going on to better understand what these animals need. And then we connect that with our field programs. So if we have an African elephant herd and we understand what is their nutrition needs, how do they interact socially, all these dynamics that we can't necessarily figure out watching a herd on the savanna, we can then take that knowledge and then apply it in the field programs based on what we need. Thankfully, the talks doesn't really happen in our parks and zoo, but there is environmental toxicology happening. So that's where I can go back and forth, but I can talk to like our vulture specialists. What is a typical vulture behavior and think about it from that point of view, and then go out and talk to our field teams and our partners in Africa and Kenya working with African vultures and be like, okay, this is what we're thinking. This is, this is a technique I think we could use to figure out what they're eating and move forward with that. That back and forth is really surprising to me. The goal is to save wildlife. It's not just to have wildlife. 
I tend to think of conservation as making sure nobody kills the animals for poaching. When I think of Africa and I think of saving wildlife, I think about getting them bulletproof vests. I don't think about having them be healthier and that being a part of conservation. Maybe I think of reproductive health. I'm interested in how, from a tox standpoint, we're looking at the health of the animals or their metabolism or the role of climate change. That's a very interesting hidden part of tox for me. Yeah. And if you don't mind, I'll step one step back on the hidden thing, because this is a job I never thought I could have. I did not know this job existed because it really didn't exist. And so a little bit with my background, I went to UCSC for biochemistry, microbiology. I always wanted to be a veterinarian, was working at a dog and cat clinic. And then things started popping up that was bothering me. I was in this cat and dog clinic and we're giving antibiotics out to treat various conditions, totally normal. And then I started working for the Department of Fish and Wildlife, where I started looking at antibiotic resistant bacteria in fecal samples being left on beaches and those samples, that fecal pathogen was then getting to sea otters. And now we have sea otters potentially with pathogens we can't treat. I was like, oh my gosh, this is big. This is huge. This is one health. Everything's connected. And so that's when I learned what a P. PhD was. That's what I started to learn what toxicology was as a field. Both my parents went to college and I knew PhD was a word, but I didn't know what to do with it. (laughs) So I started learning all these things and found out UC Davis has a dual degree program. So I ended up doing my PhD in pharmacology and toxicology there while doing my veterinary degree. And I always still had this thread of wanting to work with wildlife, having a really deep passion for the environment and trying to do things better. But you're kind of discouraged to thinking about wildlife. There's very little jobs, you're going to struggle, all this sort of thing. So I kept it on the back burner and just kept moving forward with the science that I found really interesting and then kept trying to loop it back. So as I was working with harmful algal bloom toxins, I worked with seal again, doing a benchtop model. I was wondering if we do find that these are neurotoxic and not just hepatotoxic, what does that mean for every animal that drinks small amounts of this water on a daily basis? And thinking about that, when I went to do my postdoc and was looking at the multi and transgenerational effects of toxins, where you expose the parent and then take away the toxin and you see each generation, see how things are changing. That just blew my mind. Like if you think about conservation, we try to remove and mitigate the threat right then. And we're like, okay, great. This threat is gone, but that threat might have impacts each generation that is really hard to track. One of the things I work on is poisoning events and vultures. And so vultures are very good at cleaning up dead carcasses, killing off bacteria, anthrax, no problem. You give them some sort of heavy metal or a pesticide like organophosphate, they do not handle it well. So I'm sure you've heard of the stories of giving insects to livestock, totally normal thing. But then if one dies and the vulture ends up eating it, they get really sick and die pretty fast. And so there's actually been a big movement to change what NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that we use in livestock so that those particular chemicals don't end up in the vultures and kill them. But there's other scenarios in certain communities where their livestock is their livelihood. For example, it's the rainy season, a lion comes in, it's hungry, it kills a livestock, eats some of it and leaves it for later to come back to you. Well, obviously the community that owns that livestock is very upset and very concerned that this predator is going to come back and finish off more livestock. So they take a product, carbamates, for example, that they have huge buckets of these chemicals available to them. And they'll lace the carcass with the pesticide with the idea that when the predator comes back, it will die and will remove this threat to our livelihood. 
And at least for me, when you hear that story, you're kind of shocked because we we're trained. We don't want <laughs> these chemicals. We have huge amounts of PPE. We know the lasting effects, but if you're not trained on what is a poison and the fact that it doesn't just do the one thing you think it's going to do, but it's going to get in the soil and contaminate the grass. It's this huge, long story of all the different things that could happen. Unfortunately, what often happens, it's not the lion that gets taken out. It's all the scavengers that come along throughout the day and night including the vultures. There's some other scenarios where this technique is used actually during poaching, like you mentioned, but the idea is to prevent the vulture from signaling the poaching happened. So they'll lace the carcass to kill any birds pretty quickly. And there's also a lot of using this to collect the birds in the first place. So there's a pretty big market for vultures. You kill them and then you collect the parts that you need to. So there's all these different scenarios that's just wiping out this species. They're a longer lived species. They take quite a few years to get to reproductively active. So just one of these species that takes a very long time to recoup a population and all these things are working against it. What do we do? The immediate thing is to change the human behavior to stop doing the poisoning. And there's lots of fantastic people working on that aspect. But if I think of my skill set as a veterinary toxicologist, what can I do? I start to think of those hidden tox questions. What happens to the birds that survive? Will they be able to reproduce again? And if they do, are those viable, healthy chicks? Or will they have epigenetic changes in their germline that will really kick up in three generations like we do see with some of these models? And then the collapse happens. And then how do we know that that collapse was related to three generations ago exposure to pesticides and not whatever newest catastrophe is happening? So it's really complicated. And I'm just trying to start drawing those lines. I obviously will not have all the answers, but I could start taking the expertise at something like SOT and people who dive in deep to these different pathways and be like, okay, that's really fascinating. How can I take your deep knowledge of carbamate toxicity and now apply it to my model, which is a vulture that no one really studies? When I've worked with toxicologists who were also vets, they were often just vets who went into toxicology versus what you seem to have done, which is get your PhD in tox. Looking back, you can probably very easily connect the dots, but how do you tell somebody looking forward to connect the dots to get to where you are? It wasn't a straight line. It's really networking. Networking is the only reason I'm here. Within San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, the disease investigations department, we have pathology service and histology and several board certified pathologists here. And then we have our molecular diagnostic lab up at Beckman's. They're the ones who are working both on the clinical side and then also on the research side of So within that structure, they have a resident program with UC Davis with pathology. And then there's this fellowship program. I connected with another veterinarian that I knew who had done an externship here and was like, is there any chance anyone cares about toxicology at the zoo? I was actually visiting San Diego and I was just like, I would love to live here. Does anyone ever do this? And that's when I found out the zoo even had a postdoc program. I skimmed through their current postdocs and projects on their website. And I found that there was one in giant river otters looking at mercury exposure through gold mining. So I was like, all right, someone cares about toxicology. I'm getting excited. And then I was introduced to my current supervisor, Dr. Steve Kabisky, and he was just like, you're actually the third person who said the word toxicology in the last two weeks for me. It was just the right time where the department was really like, we need to go a step beyond necropsies where toxicants might be the causative agent and start doing more research. I did a two-year fellowship program through that just to explore this idea of toxicology in our field programs and have a very long laundry list now of all the projects I'm part of, but I had to create the position. I had to convince people that this is real. This is how we're going to address it. And this is why you need to put money towards it. Moving forward, my goal is to keep that up 
mentorship wise, keep talking about it. There are wildlife toxicologists in the world. I'm on a WhatsApp with some of them. And that kind of defines how many people there are that do this. If you can put all the people in the world on a WhatsApp, we are there and you just have to keep talking about it because people do want to do it. It's just the reality of, do I have a job that I know I'll pay X, Y, and Z with benefits, or do I go into this unknown and do postdocs until something works? It's hard. And that's too bad because when you describe it, it sounds like the most fascinating thing. It's CSI, but vultures. You have these mysteries that you're solving, basically, whereas why are the crows dying? You got to leverage all of the different technologies and all of the different specialties. Like, does anybody know about this? Like, why is this happening in there? Like, get someone in here who knows about worms. (laughs) Stat! I need somebody about worms. Stat! It feels like we could have an HBO prestige series here is what I'm saying. Dr. Moore, conservation biologist. That is what I have to do because when I went through grad school, you have a thesis, you know the direction you're going, you're diving deep, you have the tools. And then you come here and you're like, great. So we have some kangaroo rats and they're bald. What are we going to do with that? And then you kind of dive into it. (laughs) My brain is like, okay, so they're at least in the rodent family. And so there's quite a bit of literature out there on rodents, but is it a San Bernardino kangaroo rat? No they could have something different. There's another case I'm working on that has to do with a crow on an island. They can't figure out if it's something infectious. So maybe now it's something toxic. And it's like, okay, you dive into the history of this island. It's in the Mariana Islands. It's a Guam. There's all these things from different wars. People live there. There's golf courses. There's landfills. We can't test for all 30,000 compounds that could be there from parents or metabolites or breakdown products or combinations of. What do you, what do, you do next? So I've had to break away from the quick gratification of like, I have a graph in three weeks to being these month-long just intense investigations that takes a team a global team to move somewhere which has its own brings its own satisfaction of I got to work with a team on the ground I got to work with Peruvian technicians to set up the first mercury device in the Amazon and test samples that we collected two weeks ago from a sloth I got to have these amazing moments but that doesn't lead to necessarily a really cool graph that I'm used to presenting at SOT and prove that I had this deep scientific knowledge of mercury and sloths or whatever because I don't I just know that there wasn't much that's great you know it's kind of switching like what my goals are with the talks and being way more applied and a lot less like mechanistically driven and having to make that switch. Which is so ironic because what you describe, you're like, oh man, I didn't get to make this cool graph. I just got to set up this cool sampling device and find out this stuff about sloths. The average person has that totally flipped. They're just like, yeah, a graph, whatever. We have this drive. This is why I'm in toxicology because I want to know why. I want to know the mechanism. And so the next step after that is what's a safe level of mercury in a sloth? What's a safe level of mercury in a sloth who's a juvenile? I don't know. These are the questions that keep me up at night. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do with it? What do you find out? It's not appropriate in that the driver in the scenario is gold mining that's just destroying the Amazon River. What are you going to do? These questions become really big and you get really overwhelmed. I have to remind myself I am just one toxicologist and I will do my part to make sure we're at least talking about it. Because oftentimes toxicology is not talked about, even within disease surveillance. Disease surveillance means pathogen exposure. And I'm just constantly like, no, a disease can happen from environmental exposure, pathogen exposure, genetic causes, and most likely all three plus other things together. So we can't just screen for the next virus. We have to look for everything. 
One of the problems that I've had over the years is that my research in the chemicals I study, they're not sexy. Mm. They're not fancy. I did an LD50. I did a local lymph node assay. Your cases where you've got something that is sexy, how do you prioritize things to throw your energy, your limited energy, because you've got lots of things at? The realistic part of how I prioritize is often like what animals die in the fastest and what we have money for, to be completely honest. It is a very collaborative environment. So all the partnerships have to be ready to do the next thing. This partner has to be ready to put down the 20,000. This partner has to be ready to accept the samples. And this partner has to be ready to do something with that information. So lining that all up helps set the priority. As far as getting the information out there, that's something I take very seriously because when you're talking about these assays, I need that information. I need that baseline. If you have screened these chemicals, that's going to come up in my random non-targeted screen. I need to know that there's even LD50s out there, which is really hard for me to know and why I really want to build this bridge between something as unique as the wildlife conservation world and what I know, because I've been going to SOT for 10 plus years, that there's this wealth of data being collected on a daily basis. I just haven't quite figured out how to make that efficient, but that's my goal. I'm part of an initiative called NC2 Laboratories. This is an initiative that is currently funded by the Gordon Betty Moore Foundation. If we think about on a disease surveillance level, where our concerns are versus where our top reference laboratories are, they're completely separated. Our concern are these really biodiverse rich areas where pathogens and unknown exposures and things like that are happening. And then we have these certified beautiful labs in the US and Europe and in China. Our idea here is how do we make a trustworthy, reliable, efficient lab in the middle of nowhere. We've been doing this in the Amazon River. There's the Los Amigos Conservation Concession that's on the Madre de Dios River in the southeastern corner of Peru. This conservation concession has been there for 20 plus years, and it's bordered by the Madre de Dios, which is heavily mined, and the Los Amigos River, which actually has a ranger station at the base to help protect it from mining. The biological station itself is pretty self-sufficient. There has been some of a lab there, but with this new funding from the Moore Grant and this NC2 Laboratory Initiative, what we're doing is really building up a molecular lab. So we have the genomic side of things. We have two open trons, we have a minion, we have PCR. So in theory, these samples can go straight from the field where we're doing the marker capture programs, collecting hair, feathers, tissues, whatever, and instantly get extracted, amplified, tested, and sequenced right there. That's just absolutely fascinating from a biodiversity standpoint. We'll get to the point where we can do eDNA, we can swab a paw print and figure out who's walking by where. What's eDNA? Environmental DNA. The trace amounts of DNA in the soil, little pieces of skin from the paw left behind or like a fecal sample or something like that. So we're building up this biodiversity side. Who's out there? Who's related to who? What's going on? And then we're building up this pathogen ecology side. So what pathogens are in their blood, viral screens, bacterial screens, ectoparasite screens. And some of that is initially going to be very targeted. And then hopefully we're going to branch into families of viruses and that sort of thing. The part that I'm like, wait, 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 this project's cool and all, but are there any other concerns? If you have an animal and it has this lesion and you find this virus, can you really make that connection that this virus is causing that lesion? Or do we need to think about anything else going on? And it turns out, like I said, massive gold mining, which produces lots of mercury. So it goes into the air and goes everywhere. What happens in amphibians? What happens in snakes? When you start to ask those questions, you realize there's a lack of data there. So what we're building is this ability to test mercury at the site alongside all these other pathogen type screenings and biodiversity screens and take this data set, which is going to be collected yearly and 
monitor over time to see if things that are happening in our world through climate change, through changes from deforestation and mining have an impact on these animals. So it's going to be this fascinating long-term cross-biota study. This is not my field, but people that I know that do field work have a lot of difficulty with sample collection and transporting it to places where samples can be processed. My colleagues would joke about like, well, we got all the baboon blood samples and maybe in a couple of months they'll make it out of customs and we can actually do our research. And it just seems like this is such a gold mine, pardon the expression. A toxic gold mine of data. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, and the quality is so much more intense that you can actually make these causal connections in some way. And that seems just unbelievably valuable for saving these charismatic species. What sort of ways can you leverage this to sell this idea to the general public that not only is this good for the animals and for the environment, but also there are these further reaching consequences for me living in my comfortable suburban house. You just nailed it. Why do I here care if the Amazon disappears? When you talk about the amount of effort we have going into a specific species of kangaroo rat, people are like, why? Why does that rat matter? We have so many. I think that has a lot to do with why we really care about the NC2 lab initiative. The idea is to have this blueprint of here's all the modalities you could use, given your area, your concerns, the pathogens you have, the species you have, this is what we would recommend deploying. Everything would be available online. Publishing is great, but I don't want to republish the same paper with just slightly updated values every year. So if you need to pull that data, you can reference, okay, this is database X version, whatever. Also not even trying to pretend like I'm the best person to analyze this huge data set. We need Peruvians in there working with this data set. We do have Peruvians in there working with this data set. This is where they're from. This is their country. This is their backyard. Yeah, it literally is a backyard. I don't want to take those samples from them. They're their samples. This is their story. My job is just to make sure it can happen. In my personal opinion, we've forgotten as a society that the land is alive, water is alive, all these things that you call natural resources, but that makes it sound expendable. If we treated the Madre de Dios River just as alive as a jaguar, just as needing our protection, just as much needing to be talked about, because if that water source goes, everything goes. We can sell a beautiful story about a beautiful jaguar, but it's the whole ecosystem we need to focus on. And that's where toxicology comes in because it does touch every plant every microorganism will be impacted by what chemicals we find in the composition there. It's hard because I understand where you're coming from, but what's happening with the lead in the water in Flint? What's happening with the air in California from the wildfires? Trying to translate those concerns in these other regions and bringing it back to here. That's got to be hard. And I think that's the thing is you can't care about one and not the other. If you care about the life of the Madre de Dios, then you care about the Klamath River in California. You, you have to care about both. You can't just care about one species in one area. So how are you so optimistic? You have a very amazing skill set. I think that you're an excellent advocate and that passion you show, I wish more of us had that or that ability to really affect change because it can't be easy to be constantly advocating for all of these things that don't have a voice and you're screaming at the top of your lungs, it's in the water. 
Well, that's why we have a team. I couldn't do my work without community engagement. I can scream all I want, but until we know how the people on the ground view wildlife, we can't take the next step because it's not going to work if I'm pushing to save jaguars and it turns out, no, it's actually snakes. Everyone there loves snakes. That's the thing that is culturally significant. That's the thing that's going to shift a point of view of, as far as keeping my enthusiasm. I do have these moments, like a friend sent me the news article about the three species of vultures in South Africa that's now extinct locally. And it's just like shattering, right? I'm the toxicologist and they're dying from poisoning. What can I do? I can work with the incredibly smart people I am surrounded by here. And it's like, well, you know what? I read a paper that in India, they're putting trackers on that as soon as they're in proximity to each other, it triggers a drone to go out and start videotaping. Let's get a camera on there. So every single vulture has a camera and okay, I'm going to put a little backpack on there to figure out what kind of toxins are in the air that they're getting exposed to, or maybe something around their talons, around their wrists. So that if they're tearing up a carcass and it's covered in pesticides, that's something we can collect later. Okay, now we have a plan. Now we're going to make a budget and now we're going to propose it. And then I'm going to send it out on this WhatsApp of all the vulture people and see who's going to pick it up. So at least there's something I can try. And that keeps me excited. I want to return to this idea of you are not alone in this. I think that's something that often gets lost in these conversations is that the framing of it very frequently ends up, it's this valiant, brilliant researcher such as yourself against this giant machine. And who cares about these things? When in reality, from what you've described, and certainly from what I've seen, there are so many more people that care about these things that are so much more engaged that they either don't realize that they have agency or that other people also care. Could you talk a little bit more about what you've experienced in terms of empowering local communities because very often I think in the West have this idea of well we have to go out and save the rest of the world when the reality is hey how about you let us save ourselves or maybe if you want to help give us some of the tools and let us figure it out. You can say what you just said, David, over and over, and there's people who still don't get it. They still want to go in and yeah, you want to set up a training program, but they're convinced they're not going to be able to find someone who understands PCR. And you're just like, this country has amazing universities. Of course we can find someone who's super dedicated, super wants to be here. We don't have to import someone. All of the work we propose, yeah, we want to investigate the cyanotoxic blooms in this country or whatever, set up some sort of monitoring event, but we're also going to make sure there's an in-country postdoc who's gonna be leading it that sort of thing because these problems are just so complicated and involve so many people i'm learning now to take my toxicology understanding my wish to understand all these mechanisms and shift gears a little bit to help facilitate what needs to be done if there's an iucn group coming together to figure out what we need to do about vultures that's going to take a ton of on the ground understanding of why are the vultures being poisoned what's going on i can work on that part but it's going to take all these other groups to come together and make a decision that they don't want vultures to die. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have a couple of questions that we like to ask every guest. What was your most significant adverse reaction? Now, is a significant adverse reaction how acute it is in the moment? Or can it be a chronic thing? However you define it. Can it involve this idea of being told repetitively not to chase your dreams and you just say, screw it, I'm going to do it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
I would tell so many people what I wanted to do for a career that I wanted to work in wildlife. And they're like, cool, great. But maybe you should go work for the water board and test samples for cyanotoxins. Or, oh, you like pathology? Maybe you should work in screening at a industry level. I was so adverse <laughs> to all of those suggestions. And I distinctly remember having the year of doubt. I was finishing school. And what am I going to do? And I'm going to SOT. I'm going to American College Toxicology. I'm going to these places. And every job description people were telling me about, I just was like, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And that was really scary because it's like, am I even a toxicologist if I don't want to do any of these people's jobs? But it was incredibly helpful for me to learn what it is the thing I actually want to do. You can do almost anything. This is what we tell each other when we go through clinics and residency and that thing. You can do anything for a year for the most part. So I was putting that kind of boundary on things. Like, is this a job that I could deal with for a year to get somewhere else? Or is this the job that I want? And so I kept using that kind of marker as I moved along and finally landed on this job and I had no adverse reactions and then moved forward. Well, yeah. this has been so much fun. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you so much. Thank you for your excellent questions. They definitely made me think. I'm going to have to take a moment to recoup now. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on Adverse Reactions. Anthropogenic ghosts on the coast. Or Joe Griffith and the legacy of the Deepwater Horizon spill. When you're trying to talk to somebody who says, is it safe to eat the fish or the shrimp that my family relies on to feed their kids? That's a whole other type of issue. And understanding that there's the abstruse scientific understanding that we want to have, there's also another level of what does this mean for people's lives? Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Adverse Reactions presented by the Society of Toxicology. And thank you to Dave Levy at Maestro Studios. That's Maestro with a three, not an E. Who created and produced all the music for Adverse Reactions, including the theme song, Decompose. The viewpoints and information presented in Adverse Reactions represent those of the participating individuals. Although the Society of Toxicology holds the copyright to this production, it has definitely not vetted or reviewed the information presented herein. Nor does presenting and distributing this podcast represent any proposal or endorsement of any position by the Society. You can find out more information about the show at Adverse Reactions Podcast. Dot com. And more information about the Society of Toxicology on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Anne Chappelle. And I'm David Faulkner. This podcast was approved by Anne's mom. <laughs>